Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is one of the nation's best political reporters, the journalist and author Molly Ball. Molly's written a new biography of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called Pelosi, and it's full of insights about the nation's first female Speaker of the House, someone who has been representing San Francisco in Congress since 1987. We talk about how the most powerful person in shaping Pelosi's life wasn't her father, the former mayor and congressman from Baltimore. It was her mother, Annunziata, or Big Nancy. We talk about how Pelosi has dealt with sexism throughout her career and what she is like away from the cameras and spotlight. And when and how and if she is ever going to leave office. And now, here's my conversation with Molly Ball. Molly Ball, from your home in Virginia to my home in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So I love this book. I love many scenes in this book, uh, Pelosi. But one of my favorites are, are the scenes in uh, Baltimore, where Nancy Pelosi grew up. People talk about her dad, uh, the former mayor of Baltimore, member of Congress from there, as being sort of you know, her inspiration, her pathway to Congress, and, and what have you. But as you point out, it's really her mom. Annunziata, which is a great Italian name I, that I, could, I love and relate to, uh, Big Nancy, which is the power of the family. Tell us about Annunziata and the favors file and yellow, yellow tablets that, uh, that they kept in the house and how that kind of shaped Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that uh, that you like the book. Um, I really wanted to center uh, Nancy Pelosi's mother in this narrative because if you've ever talked to her about her early life, she always goes out of her way to mention her mother's influence. I think in part because so much has been attributed to her father, which of course is natural. Her father was a politician and Nancy Pelosi became a politician and went into the family business. But she feels strongly that her mother was an important influence that's maybe been under-recognized simply because she didn't have that that title in front of her name. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, at Big Nancy, I won't try to pronounce the Italian name, uh, was, was really a partner in the family political career. It wasn't just Nancy Pelosi's father who was the politician in the family. Uh, and she was responsible for administering the so-called favor file, which was a sort of living room constituent services organization where you know constituents of, of the mayor, uh, her husband, Nancy Pelosi's father, would come to their row house in Baltimore's Little Italy when they you know needed a job or needed to get into the hospital, needed to get on welfare, uh, any kind of service they needed from the government. And uh, the mayor and his family would see what they could do. And then when the time came for the election, they'd make sure they cashed in those favors. And uh, that was another big responsibility of Big Nancy. She ran the Baltimore Democratic Women's Club out of the basement of that same house. And the women were crucial to getting out the vote when election time rolled around, to pounding the pavement, going precinct by precinct, block by block getting the voters to turn out. So, you know, she had, she by all accounts had a very strong, forceful, perhaps even aggressive personality, legendarily once uh, punched a poll worker in the face who, who displeased her. So I think you can see aspects of that toughness uh, in her daughter, Nancy Pelosi. But another thing that, that shaped Nancy Pelosi was watching the ways that her mother was limited in her life, was stifled because she was a woman. She wasn't able to realize her dream of 
going to law school or starting a business. She wasn't allowed to make investments because in those days you needed a man's signature on the checks and her husband wouldn't give it to her. So Nancy Pelosi growing up, the, the youngest of, of six with five older brothers, uh, her parents never expected her to go into politics. That was still a man's domain. Uh, but she learned a lot from both watching the family political enterprise and from watching her mother and, and I think being, being angry on her mother's behalf that she wasn't allowed to achieve everything she wanted to. And she also has a great story about how uh, LBJ, former President uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, said, uh, explain that. That's a, that's a very telling mark, too, I think, that, we'll, that we can recognize in little Nancy Pelosi later in life. Yes, I love this story. So at some point uh, during the Lyndon Johnson administration, uh, by which time uh, Mayor D'Alessandro would have left office, uh, he's sitting with the president and, and his wife and the president uh, heard any Italian man as Tony. So he starts calling him Tony and, uh, and Big Nancy stops him and says, Mr. President, uh, my father, my, my husband's name is Thomas John D'Alessandro. So that demand for respect, that refusal to let anybody sort of steamroll you or tell you what your place is in life, I think you see a lot of that in uh, Nancy Pelosi as well. And it was there that Pelosi learned how to be, quote, operational. And that's how uh, Phil Burton, the longtime congressman uh, from here in San Francisco, and his wife, Sala Burton, described her. Explains, explain what that means to be operational. Yeah, I think uh, it, it means you're focused on results. It means everything you do is toward a goal. You're not, you know, showboating. You're not doing things because they make you feel good or look good, but you're trying to get something out of this process. And I think you know, Nancy Pelosi, the, the, bigger, the big theme of this book is she's, she's essentially an instrumentalist, always doing things because they will advance her goal, not because uh, she thinks that people will like it or like her or anything else. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of times over the course of her career when she has uh, refused credit for things that she was a part of or, or even hidden her role in things that she was trying to accomplish uh, because the results to her matter more than anything else. And I think that is still, you know, that was the way Phil Burton described her before he died, the way Sala Burton, who sort of legendarily bequeathed her congressional seat to uh, Nancy Pelosi back in 1987, that was the word that they used for her, and I think it's still a really good way to understand her. And also goes to sort of why Democrats listen to Pelosi. She has had incredible control of the caucus in her time as, as leader and as a speaker. She's not a yeller, as you, as you say, um, and she and she rarely punishes people. So and and so the question is why does she why do people listen to her? And you say that's the chill of guilt and disapproval. And for those of us who are Italian Catholics, we can all relate to that. Um, explain what that means. Uh, the chill of guilt and disapproval. Why why do people listen? Why how does she able to keep the caucus in line? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, and and uh, it, this isn't just my opinion that she's good at this, right? Scholars who study Congress tell you that she has enforced uh, a level of, of party unity 
uh, in both of her stints as speaker that, that set a modern record. And that's a marked contrast to the Republican speakers that she succeeded, right, who famously had a hard time keeping their, their troops together. And, you know, it, it's a lot of personal relationships. It's a lot of listening. It's a lot of making people feel heard, even if you don't give them what uh, they want. It's uh, a lot of uh, just being being honest and transparent with people. I think one thing that Democrats in the House really respect about Nancy Pelosi is she's not going to tell you what you want to hear. She will, if she can't give you something, you will know that up front. Uh, but there's a great story that uh, I think it was former Congressman Steve Israel told me this about uh, one time when uh, some member of the caucus crossed her and uh, in a particularly egregious way and uh, the the next time she went to dole out the committee assignments, he still got his his subcommittee, and uh, she was asked, "So, well, why didn't you take that away from him? Why didn't you punish him?" And and she said, "Well, now he has to be with me next time." So understanding that you can get more out of people if you make them beholden to you uh, than if you simply you know alienate them and push them out of the circle. I think that that's a that's very insightful into the way that she thinks about these things. She's she's always playing the long That's game. Right. She, and 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 something that you know, as we see her day to day now, we we forget this. But she was what forty seven years old by the time she got her first time first full time job as an adult, uh, and that was as a member of Congress. She raised five children. Uh, her husband Paul, of course, she she followed him to from New York to here in San Francisco. How did her experience as a mother shape? the uh, speaker Nancy Pelosi, majority leader, minority leader Nancy Pelosi, how did, how did that shape her? Yeah, well, I relate to this a lot as, as a mom myself. You, uh, she talks about it as, first of all, becoming a mother in a really intense way. She had five children in six years uh, and never had uh, full-time help around the house. Uh, she talks about this, this feeling of your capacity being expanded, right? That, that uh, you no longer have any kind of downtime. You're in the sort of new frontiers of sleeplessness uh, phase of, of parenting infants. Yes. And, and you realize that you're just capable of so much more than you thought because you have to be. And then I think when you have a large number of children, as, as she and, and arguably I do, uh, you, you also have to manage shifting alliances, right? You've always got, you know, <laughs> I've got three kids and two of them are always ganging up on another. They're always, you know, playing each other off one another. So you've really got to manage this sort of team of rivals, right? You've got to get a group of people who all want different things and all think that they have a claim on your attention. You've got to get them all rowing in the same direction. So, you know, the, the slogan that she repeats ad nauseum to the Democratic caucus, our diversity is our strength, our unity is our power. I think about that sometimes as a mom, right? Because it's the same thing with kids. They all have different strengths, different ideas. You've got to make them all feel listened to. Uh, but the family unit is only going to work if, if everybody gets on the same page toward whatever the goal is, even if it's just, well, these days, getting your shoes on and getting out of the house. Yeah, yes, you start small. Uh, when, now, when she arrived in Congress in 1987, uh, this is, it seems like light years away from what, uh, from uh, the way things are now. Uh, women still weren't allowed to wear pants on the House floor. Uh, Barbara Mikulski, as you write, was the first Democrat elected to the Senate who wasn't preceded by her husband. Um, and people thought she was kind of a lightweight. They thought she was a rich lady from San Francisco. Uh, you know, she's well-dressed. She always looked good. A very telling uh, early uh, anecdote is when she went to 
a reception uh, thrown by Procter and Gamble. And then she went there with Fred Ross Jr., who is, as, as Californians know, longtime farm workers or an organizer who worked, who had worked with Pelosi. Uh, tell us what happened there when the head of Procter and Gamble came to Pelosi and said that the company had a new perfume and she, I'm sure she'd love to be the first to try it on. Tell us what happened and, 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 uh, what happened? There. I'm so glad you brought this up because it is one of my favorite stories from the love book. Love this. Love this story. I love it. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, you know her her main opponent in that congressional campaign, her first uh, election in, in in 1987, called her a dilettante. And when she got to Congress, she was one of only 23 women, many of whom had gotten there because their husbands went there first. So uh, you know it was a, kind of a, a lonely place to be, sisterhood wise. Uh, and, uh, and these, these kinds of, you know, casual slights were, were constant, uh, you know, people assuming that she was a, a staffer or, or something else instead of recognizing that she was a member in her own right and that kind of thing. Uh, and so at this reception with the CEO of Procter and Gamble, she had brought Fred Ross with her because at the time he was uh, helping to organize boycotts of coffee imported from El Salvador because of the human rights abuses there. And uh, Folgers, I believe, is one of the, the brands owned by Procter and Gamble. Uh, so, the, so the CEO is chatting up this this lovely Congress new newish Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, and. And says to her, no doubt because she's a woman, oh, you must try our new fragrance. I'm sure you'd love to be the first to try it. And she says to him, I, I'd like you to meet my friend. This is Fred Ross Jr. And of course, the CEO knows exactly who this is because he's been leading these boycotts and protests and, his, and the color sort of drains from his face. And he says, Mr. Ross, I've tactics reprehensible. And he sort of storms away. And Nancy Pelosi turns to Fred Ross and says, reprehensible. I wonder if that's the name of the perfume he was talking about. Uh, and and uh, what I love about that story is it, it shows her confrontational nature, but also the follow-up was she actually didn't let it drop there. She arranged for a meeting between the Procter & Gamble people and Fred Ross's organization, and they actually succeeded in getting the company to stop importing coffee from El Salvador. So there you have the the operational nature at its finest. She wasn't content to merely sort of get off a good zinger. She she followed up and she got the result that she wanted. And as you write, that was typical uh, Pelosi, quote, ballsy, confrontational, even a little bitchy, little bit bitchy. What did you see? Is that sort of the, the root of the Pelosi we saw in that first meeting with Trump and, and uh, after she uh, took over as speaker again. Did you, did, you, did you see the connection between those two? You drew the connection between those two. Tell us about that, about that the link. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's just like her mother, someone who's never been afraid to get up in people's faces, even if those people were men, even if they were powerful people. You know, this is someone who went to Tiananmen Square in 1991 and staged a protest against the Chinese authorities that got her chased out of, of the square. She, uh, she's always had this, and, and it was part of what endeared her to Phil Burton as well. There, you know, he was legendarily rough around the edges and, and was suspicious of her at first, right? This sort of rich housewife who's throwing all these fancy parties and fundraisers. Uh, but in one of their early interactions, I don't actually know what the substance of the argument was, but she stood up to him when he tried to sort of shout her down. And that was a big reason that, that he grew to respect her so much. So you see that absolutely in the way that she's dealt with Trump from that, that, that famous meeting that that's pictured on, on the cover of the book with the red coat, where, uh, 
you know, people remember her wearing the coat, putting on the sunglasses, walking out of the meeting. But what really started that, uh, that image catching fire was what she said in that meeting was when, you know, she's in the midst of the speaker race, struggling to get her caucus to, to back her once again. And Trump alluded to that and said, Nancy can't really talk right now. She interrupted him. She put her hand out and she said, Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just want a big victory. So she has never allowed other people to speak for her. And she has always stood up, got in people's faces, demanded respect, demanded to be heard. And I think uh, those are qualities that uh, are always beloved in a woman leader, <laughs> but have helped her right. uh, to get where she is today. We'll have more of my conversation with Molly Ball after this short break. Here's more of my conversation with Molly Ball. Uh, of course, her signature achievement and, and one that she has stayed in the Congress to protect is the Affordable Care Act. Um, you detail in the book uh, that the sort of the, the sausage making that went on. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, but one thing that, that caught my eye was how you know, she didn't think Obama was a particularly good negotiator. You know, they, of course, he always gives her much credit for the Affordable Care Act and such. Um, and, and some of the Obama bros, the, the, the young men who were uh, his top aides, didn't particularly like her either. They called her, quote, nasty P. What's, what's that all about? Well, I think a lot, recent events have led a lot of people to, to reevaluate Nancy Pelosi and her place in history and, and her importance and her skills at, at, at running the Congress. Uh, but for so long, all of the narrative around her has been about her negative public image, about, you know, the way she represents, quote, San Francisco values and the hundreds of millions of dollars that uh, Republicans have put into attack ads all across the country, associating Democratic congressional candidates with her as a way to, you know, turn off the local voters. And I'm not saying there's anything unfair about this. Politics ain't beanbag. Uh, but it has cemented this image of her in people's minds as, as, as this sort of, you know, sharp-edged, uh, far-left partisan. Uh, and so I think a lot of uh, even the Democratic Party ha have been susceptible to to seeing her that way rather than seeing her as, I would argue, you know, the sort of operational results focused, essentially a deal maker uh, who's very much coming from uh, the, you know, the, 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 the center of her party in that regard and, and who does want to reach across the aisle when and if it's possible, but, is, but she's not uh, naive about the potential for that. Uh, so yes, uh, you know, the Obama administration came in and they had these uh, lofty uh, ideas about being able to end the stalemate between red and blue and find things that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. And she had uh, at that point been in Congress uh, for a while and didn't think that uh, that was very likely, and she told them that. And uh, I think in the end, they would look back and say that, that, that she was right, and perhaps they should have listened to her more. It was interesting to me in my conversations with a lot of uh, sort of veterans of the Obama administration that uh, in retrospect, they felt like maybe they should have listened to her more. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, um, I wanted to ask you, so one time I asked her, when she was on, on this very podcast, um, who she leans on for guidance, who she looks up to. And um, I'm going to play now what she said. You mean outside of being very prayerful about it? 
Yes, outside of, outside of no, no, no. I, that, just I think that's, reflecting, that's, praying, yes. opening up mind. Someone on, on earth, yes. <laughs> well, don't underestimate that's, the power of prayer. Yes, no, no, I believe, believe me. Yes, yes. It depends on the subject. Mm-hmm. I have really been blessed with knowing so many people who have been um, expert in their field who have knowledge on the subject, so I trust their judgment based on our shared values and their knowledge. But let Uh, me tell you the greatest source of wisdom, Mm -hmm. the American people. Uh, I work very closely with the the groups, uh, advocacy groups, and they, because I said to you before, it doesn't matter if you don't connect with the aspirations of the American people. And they have the best handle the others may have the vision, the knowledge, all of this, but they have the this, mm-hmm. the, the connection. Molly, what do you what do you make of that? Where she, you know, there's, I mean, granted, she's been there so long that you know she really doesn't have many peers, but that that she doesn't really, you know, there's not someone that she goes to right now. Yeah, I, that is a really fascinating answer. And, and honestly, it's a question that I spent a lot of time on uh, and wasn't able to get a real sense of because she does keep, uh, she keeps her own counsel and she keeps her cards very, very close to the vest. Uh, she she does consult people, but she doesn't have the sort of kitchen cabinet of advisors, right? Or or a, or a single uh, consultant who, who is known to serve as sort of her political brain, right? Uh, while her older brother, Tommy, was still alive, uh, he was a very close confidant and they talked all the time. And he was one of the few people who could really <laughs> yell at her and, and, and put her down uh, if, he, if he felt it was merited. Uh, former Congressman George Miller, who was... Yes. Uh, from the East Bay here, who, yes. Who's yeah. from the neighboring district and, and who uh, was very, very close to her while he was in Congress, sort of serving as almost her, her liberal enforcer, uh, helping her with the left. He was a very, very close uh, advisor and confidant. Uh, Jack Murtha, uh, the, the late uh, conservative congressman from, from Pennsylvania, was someone who, especially in the early days, helped to sort of validate her with a lot of the uh, crustier, uh, more conservative male members of the caucus. Uh, but most of those people, all of those people have passed on. Uh, George Miller's still alive, but no longer in Congress. And so, and, and I think part of her reluctance to answer the question also uh, might be because as a leader, she doesn't want to be seen as singling anybody out or playing favorites. So she doesn't want to admit that, you know, there's there's a few people she listens to more than others. But I do think that sort of unique among the politicians that I have covered, uh, she doesn't have that sort of inner circle that people know she goes to for advice on a regular basis. And if she, you, you also comment, uh, you write at, at the end of the book that she, you know, you've had many interviews with her over the what, two years that you, you worked on this. And um, you found her like personally impenetrable in terms of, you know, she's not uh, self-reflective. They're, you're not doing a lot of Hamleting uh, and thinking about, you know, what could have been, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. How much is it a, that is about her personally? And how much of that is about uh, being a female politician growing up the way she did uh, and growing up and, and entering the Congress at the time she did and sort of climbing up through the ranks in the way she did? Yeah, you know, uh that's kind of impossible to answer, but I do think it has to do with all of those things. I do, you know, some of it is surely cultural and generational, the way that she was raised to be a sort of, you know, polite, ladylike, uh, 
Catholic uh, schoolgirl uh, in the early years. Uh, there's a sort of reserve there, a feeling that it's unseemly to sort of uh, talk about yourself in a really personal way. And, and, and growing up in the 1940s and 50s, right, sort of b before the sort of more confessional uh, phases of, of, of American culture that, that <laughs> follow. Uh, and some of it has to just be the way that she is. She isn't somebody who is is in, who engages in a lot of public introspection. She isn't somebody who sort of lets her hair down and spills her guts. And it's not just me being a reporter. I talk to a lot of people around her, people who are uh, personal friends outside of politics, and they really said that that is that is the way she is. There is always that that sense of reserve, and 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 the way she is in public is really the way she is in private. She just doesn't give away. A lot of herself. She doesn't. Uh, she doesn't really like gossip, and uh, and and she isn't going to, you know, tell you a lot about how she feels about uh, particularly, you know, the way that she's perceived. So, uh, you know, I, I do wonder if some of it is also a, a bit of a defense mechanism because she has been the subject of of so many attacks over the years. Do you end up sort of building a a suit of armor to to guard against that? Uh, because you realize that, you know, you can't even open your freezer without people having a field day. Uh, I don't know. I suspect <laughs> so. But uh, but you, at some point, I just sort of accepted that, that that's as far as I'm going to get into into her uh, her soul. And yet she changed in recent years in some way, which you which you note. And um, and that's mostly I think it was after you know, these years and years of attacks and, and when she was out of the speakership um, and in the minority for many years. Um, over the last much of the last decade, and uh, she started speaking up for herself. Uh, in fact, one time she came to the Chronicle editorial board, and uh, after it was a couple of days after I'd written a column, kind of questioning about, okay, maybe this is time for Pelosi to go, or, and she spent most of the editorial board ripping me. Uh, and in the way you describe so beautifully the book, where it's not angry or anything, but it's really, she's she, at one point she said, obviously you don't know how Washington works. <laughs> And, uh, and so, and, and then, but she kind of mocked it at the same time. So it was, but what was the change where she started talking about how she was, you know, she got these challenges to her leadership. She said, well, Hey, I am a master legislator. What was it there that kind of, as you write in the book where she kind of snapped in some way, something clicked and changed on her. Yeah, you know, I think for a long time, she viewed her public image as essentially irrelevant to her goals. And because she's focused on her goals and focused on results, what she cares about is getting, you know, legislation through the Congress and keeping the reins on that large, unruly Democratic caucus. And so the fact that she's in a bunch of attack ads uh, really doesn't matter to her. It doesn't make her feel bad. It's, it doesn't uh, affect her day, her day job. Uh, her constituents in San Francisco keep reelecting her by, by wide margins. Uh, so, so she's safe. But, you know, I think after the attempted coups within the Democratic caucus, uh, particularly in 2016 and 2018, uh, when a, a smallish but, but considerable faction of members uh, started agitating uh, for her to to be dethroned as leader, uh, and I think and, and and their stated reasons for that were all about her public image, right? When Tim Ryan was running against her in 2016, no part of his critique was, "Oh, I don't like the way she runs the house." It was all about, well, you know, 
she's in every ad in every district across the country. She's hurting our candidates. We need a fresher face. We need a new image for the Democratic Party. We need, you know, we need to represent change in some way. Uh, and so that was the point at which her public image began interfering with her in her, her inside game, her, her goals in the House. She could no longer manage her caucus as well as she would like to because of the way she was viewed on the outside. And I think over the course of the Obama administration too, really very few people spoke up to defend her. George Miller would, would complain about the fact that, you know, the, the Obama administration and others in the party uh, never stepped up to answer for all these attacks on her. So at some point, I think she took matters into her own hands and decided that she needed to be more assertive about enunciating her strengths and telling people uh, what she thought uh, she had to offer because no one else was going to do it. And, and because not having that out there uh, was making it harder for, do, for her to do the things that she wanted to do. What is uh, President Trump has, has been sort of a gift to her in some ways is it gives her um, just a, a, a great foil. And she, since she knows that inside game so well, and he doesn't, that allows her to come out on top many times. What what is this the key to her strength with Trump and her ability to uh, to actually to be a very good foil for him? Or I'm sorry, he for he for her. Well, it's hard to imagine a better contrast, right? For either of them, they're they're such polar opposites in so many ways. Uh, and I think it's been clear from the start that that. Uh, she has a way of getting under his skin that nobody else uh, in the Democratic Party has has quite managed to have. And he has periodically expressed his sort of grudging respect for her. I mean, for all of their differences, I think one thing that we know about President Trump is that the thing he respects above all is strength, toughness, dominance. And the and, you know, say what you will about Nancy Pelosi, but it's hard to argue that she isn't tough. And so he has always, I think, respected her for that reason. Now, they haven't spoken in many months, and uh, that is mostly uh, Trump's doing. He, uh, ever since impeachment and even further back, going back to the investigations and uh, the Russia probe and so on, uh, basically said he could not deal with her and with the Democrats as long as they were engaged in what he considered a witch hunt. But she has found ways to deal with the administration. She has a very good relationship with the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin. So it's largely been a product of their negotiations that have resulted in these, you know, multi-trillion dollar coronavirus response uh, packages of legislation. Uh, but the but the dynamic between her and Trump is, is, is really fascinating. And I think it has really contributed to the turnaround in her public image. Uh, partly just because, you know, Democrats and liberals are, are, are so thirsty for anyone to, to, to seem to stand up to Trump in public, and, and she does that. Uh, but partly because he cannot steamroll her the way he does a lot of people, and he seems to know it. And this time right now, we're dealing with the demonstrations uh, in, in the wake of the death of George Floyd. Where does Pelosi fit into something like this? This doesn't, you know, she, obviously she would be sympathetic to the issue. She's, but where does like someone who's operational fit into this moment right now? What can she do to take the cause of Black Lives Matter further? Well, it's been interesting. You know, she her position has been that yes, she supports the protest. She went out and joined the protesters a few days ago. Uh, but when it comes to a legislative response, uh, she has very much wanted to 
let the Congressional Black Caucus take the lead. Uh, the uh, Californian former speaker, Karen Bass, uh, has been spearheading a lot of these legislative efforts. And you know, the, the Black Caucus is a really important part of the Democratic House Caucus. And I didn't, I wasn't able to spend a lot of time on it in the book, but she could not possibly have been leader or speaker if she didn't have the buy-in of the Black Caucus. And it's been a really important, that mutual uh, respect there has been a really important part of her success in, in leadership. So I think, I think a lot of them feel that she is doing the right thing by basically saying, I'm going to elevate your voices in this and not try to speak for you. Um, and then to support the legislation that they came up with that they unveiled uh, this week. So as part of her, uh, the deal uh, from a couple of years ago when she became speaker again, she put on a, was a four-year term. So how do you see her, um, uh, she's a great, you have a great quote in the book about passing the baton. She says, I don't pass the baton. Everybody has a baton in their own bag. They can pick up and lead the parade if they want to. But how do you see her uh, stepping down from the speakership? And do you think she'll step down from office when she does? So I have no idea. And it is not something she uh, likes to talk about. She gets, <laughs> she gets notably prickly if you ever bring it up and she'll accuse you of ageism, sexism, and all sorts of things. Uh, she very much is, feels she will leave on, on her own terms. At the same time, you know, I revealed for the first time in the book that when she did accept that four-year term limit, uh, she later told colleagues that it was sort of a fake concession on her part because she was only planning to stay uh, for two years anyway. So that was her thinking, at least at uh, the beginning of, of 2019. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's these repeated times in her career where people thought she was going to move on and she found something that she believed uh, compelled her to stay. So, uh, so I don't know what... Like if Trump wins, don't you say, well, I, she, couldn't you see her saying, well... I'm the only, I'm, I got to be the pro in the room. No one else can do this better than I am. I will stay on again. Absolutely. I would uh, not be surprised to hear that from her at all. And, you know, she <laughs> said in, after the 2016 election, she said she was thinking about stepping down if Hillary Clinton won the election, because then there would be a woman at that table. But uh, since Hillary didn't win, that part of the reason she felt compelled to stay was to protect the Affordable Care Act. But another part of it was to ensure that there was still a woman in those discussions of, of the White House and top congressional leaders. So, you know, the, the, with uh, Joe Biden being the Democratic nominee, uh, he's pledged to put a woman on the ticket, but the vice president isn't necessarily in those rooms or an important part of those negotiations. Will that compel her once again, to say, well, I, my voice needs to be here. Uh, I really don't know. I, I don't think she knows at this point. I, I think that's probably a, a decision she has yet to make. But if she has made it, she wouldn't tell me and she wouldn't tell you. So who knows? No, no, of course not. That'd be, that's, that would be not operational. Um, what kind of candidate could beat a Pelosi? No one's come close. I'm not even, not even, not close. It's, um, what type of candidate could beat her? Uh, you know, she's, you can't compare her to Joe Crowley because she knows, she knows the, she's such a great um, campaigner and she knows that she's a forward thinker, but is there any way you could ever see that happening to her? You know, it's interesting. She has had primary challengers over the years and, and they, and the critique normally has been from the left because of the nature of the district, right? Going back to uh, when she first got into leadership, there have been protesters camped out on, on her yard and in Pacific Heights, uh, accusing her of being a corporate sellout and all kinds of other things. I think she probably believes that she is closer to 
the mainstream ideologically of uh, of that district uh, than than many of her challengers. Even though San Francisco has this rep reputation as such a left wing uh, progressive bastion, uh, but uh, she has uh, she has never had trouble getting reelected. Uh, people do seem to feel like she represents them well, and I think probably the fact that she's the speaker and has such a high profile. Uh, makes it harder for a challenger to, to get traction because then you have the additional argument of if you get rid of her, not only are you uh, getting rid of a, a single member of Congress, but also the, you know, the clout that accrues to that powerful position. So uh, I, you know, I'm not a political strategist and I'm not uh, giving advice to anyone who wants to oust uh, Nancy Pelosi, but it, it does seem like she has kept a, tight grip on the district um, by being in touch with what people there want. And finally, what is her legacy? What, uh, if, what will we remember Nancy Pelosi as, of course, as the first uh, female Speaker of the House, but what beyond that, what, what will we remember her as? What, is, what, will, what does she leave us with? Well, I do think that her being the first woman Speaker is really important. She's still the only woman to lead a party in the Congress, and that took a lot of doing and she had to fight pretty hard for that. She would like her legacy to be the Affordable Care Act. I've asked her this question and that's what she says. She, uh, you know, and, and, and it's hard to deny that that's important. This is, you know, some form of universal health care program was something that Democratic presidents tried and failed to achieve for the better part of a hundred years. And she was an integral part of, of finally getting it done. Uh, you know, she's now part of these multi-trillion dollar uh, economic relief act. She was part of uh, arguably rescuing the American economy once before during the financial crisis. She's had a hand in all kinds of other uh, legislation. I think she also has, has been a big part of shaping the Democratic Party in a sort of pivotal moment in its existence as it has been sort of transitioning from the sort of Democratic Party that her father was a part of, the sort of urban machine uh, Democrats that she grew out of, and into a Democratic Party that looks more like Nancy Pelosi, more sort of coastal elites, if you will. Uh, so I, I think all of those things uh, are, are a part of her legacy, and uh, the history has yet to be written. The, the last thing I would say is that uh, her effectiveness is, is a big part of it, too. You know, the, mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. not a historian or a political scientist, but the people who are, who study these things, say that uh, by whatever metric you want to use, she's one of the most uh, effective and successful speakers uh, in modern times, potentially going all the way back to uh, Sam Rayburn in, in the 50s, who's sort of a giant of, of this world. So I think uh, she'll be remembered as, as an unusually effective congressional leader at a time when there was not a huge amount of effective congressional leadership to be found. <laughs> Molly Ball, thank you so much. The book is called Pelosi, uh, av available where you obtain books now. And uh, thank you for being on It's All Political. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. I'd like to thank Molly for being on the podcast today. Her new book is called Pelosi, and it's available wherever you buy books. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you're operational or dysfunctional, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, 
written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.